Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So let's talk paper scissors. Next on our journey, hearing from those in industry who make space for others through community building, we have the newly launched Canadian Typography Archives, CTA, with board member Sam Archibald. Sam is a founding board member of the Canadian Typography Archives, owner and creative director of Shortstop, and a founding director of Pride Advertising and Marketing, Pride Am. Born in Vancouver, British Columbia, and now living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, his bi-coastal experience informs his tendency to look at all sides of a problem. He enjoys the creative process, impactful advertising, great typography, and curling up with a good book or a reality TV show. In this episode, you'll hear about the impetus that led to the Canadian Typography Archives, as well as the driving force behind it. You'll hear about the uniquely Canadian perspective missing from type history books and how the archive plans to fill in the gaps now and in the future, including the goal to include diverse representation in the archives. Now in and around the 15 minute mark, Sam describes the significance of one of the pieces in the archive and you can find the link in the show notes at talkpaperscissors.info to follow along. This episode was recorded as part of a guest lecture series in GCM 230 Typography in fall 2023 at the Creative School at Toronto Metropolitan University. Okay, let's listen in. All right. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here for all the students in GCM 230 Typography. Thanks for making the time to be at this virtual lecture. And I think you're in for a treat today. You're going to learn all about the newly launched Canadian Typography Archives. So it's a really exciting project that you're going to hear more about um, from Sam, who has kindly joined us from, I believe, Halifax. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Back. So you are from the future. You are an hour in the future. And mm -hmm. you're here to tell us all about what it is the Canadian Typography Archives are and some of the plans. So maybe that's a good place to start. Welcome. Awesome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell us a bit about yourself, please. And tell us a bit about your connection to the Canadian Typography Archives. Sure. Okay. And I will try not to I'll try to keep, to be as brief as possible and make sure we're focused on type. Um, but interestingly enough, I I come at type probably a lot like your students in this class. Um, I had some great type professors in university and uh, was going through a design program and then switched into an advertising program. But throughout both of those university experiences type was always sort of um i like to think of it a little bit like a secret power it's kind of like especially having worked in the industry for about almost 15 years now um it's the one thing that i can i can point to and say not everybody who's out there working these days has um 
has the same opportunities because they may not fully grasp or have a complete understanding of the way type could work in their favor. Um, so my background is in what we would call design or advertising art direction. Um, I've worked uh, in uh, agencies, uh, advertising agencies, marketing agencies, um, and I currently now run my own um, ad agency, uh, creative agency out here in Halifax. Um, but my connection to type is through my time in university more than anything. Um, and my connection to the CTA or the Canadian Typography Archives is through a former uh, professor of mine. So a gentleman by the name of Rod McDonald, who uh, I'm going to make some assumptions that everyone on this call is familiar with uh, Adobe Type or you know what access we may or may not have. I'm assuming the Creative Suite is something that we all use. Uh, if not, um, one of Rod's uh, typefaces that he designed uh, is actually available on um, Adobe Type. It's called Gibson. And uh, Gibson is actually part and parcel, one of the main reasons why the Canadian typography archives exist and why I'm here today. Um, the licensing and the sales of that font through Canada Type, which is a, a foundry um, based in Toronto, uh, and through the license to Adobe has enabled us to fund uh, what we currently have for the Canadian Typography Archives. So um, Canadian Typography Archives is essentially an initiative to document and preserve the history of typography uh within this place so there um yeah and 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 um that is our kind of mission and goal as simple as it could sound that is that is it so type funding more type projects you know? yes cool. exactly yeah very cool that's yeah. interesting. So what was the, I mean, you've kind of touched on it already, but like, what was the genesis? What was the starting point? What's the the origin story of the Canadian Typography Archives? Um, like, wh why collect this information? Sure. Yeah. So um, I will say I've been involved with the organization for about a year now. Um, but the, the impetus or the genesis of the organization began, I believe, almost back in 2017. And uh, that former professor of mine, now colleague and friend Rod uh, Gibson, you got to remember that name when you're when you're looking for a good typeface on Adobe uh, Type. Um, he he was also as a professor had been teaching at Sheridan. He's taught at OCAD. He taught at NASCAD. I don't think he'd had the pleasure of teaching at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, unfortunately. However, very connected to the industry, both as a as a professional and then as a, a professor. Um, and he found that when he was trying to teach type in those institutions, that it was difficult to, um, to ground it in anything that wasn't either European or, you know, or American or to our, you know, our, our neighbors to the South. Um, so, you know, being able to talk about how, you know how type was was formed in Canada and unique. It has its own unique perspective. There just wasn't the knowledge out there. There wasn't the materials for him as a professor to draw from to then teach. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and so that is uh, that really was sort of the impetus was that he was looking for 
well, geez, you know, there's this distance effect in his, 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 his instruction that was, you know, we were always referring to, as, as he's relayed to me, that he was always referring to, you know, the, you know, the Swiss masters or, you know, German type or, you know, the, um, you know, the, the uh, inventiveness of Paul Asher and, you know, what was going on in California in the 90s. And never really had an opportunity, he felt, to kind of ground it in uh, a story that was uniquely from this place. So that's really what started it, as well as um, he was invited to give uh, a keynote speech at a uh, typography conference in Montreal back in 2017, I believe. And he called the talk that he gave Type Night in Canada. Um, and, and in pulling together the material to talk about the history of typography in Canada, he realized there was a lot of things he didn't know and there was a lot of gaps. And so that really kicked him reaching out to other members of the founding board to collect uh, as many artifacts as they could, as well as get the stories behind those artifacts to start to tell this story. And because that's really where we are uh, November 16th, uh, 2020, is we've just started to tell this story, but there's so much more to come. I think that's a, a really great segue and I, yes. I agree, by the way, I agree that it is difficult to find a uniquely Canadian perspective when it comes to the history of type. There's yes. lots and lots and lots, as you mentioned, about um, type in Europe and some really yeah. significant trends and kind of progression and evolution in in from a European context, as well as, as you say, from an American context. But there's a whole lot of dark spots all over the globe, Canada included, as to like, there's just really not well-documented, well-curated, well-collected um, bits and pieces about the history of Canadian typography or the history of type in, in specific places in the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think um, not to make it a nationalist agenda, because that is not what the CTA is about. It's not necessarily about, you know, rah, 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 look at, how amazing Canada is in a certain sense. It's about, there are unique stories from here that have not necessarily been even uncovered when the work was going on. You know, there was, there was, there was, um, I, I, I don't even know enough to say about the stories, but the things I've, I've, I've read about already on some of the work we have is interesting to me, as well as Rod found that those outside of the country were very interested in our history and held the held the quality of work that came out of this country in high regard. Um, you know, individuals like Carl Baer, um, Alan Fleming, who we would know from you know the CN identity that 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 he did. Um, you know, those people had impact not just here in Canada but around the world, and they're not necessarily as recognized as others um, in in our textbooks but um, uh, we felt that, that there would be opportunity to tell that story and also uncover stories that were perhaps never really told even when they were occurring so I'm going to pull up the website because I want I would love for students to get a sense of what sure what they can expect um let's see if i've got it here i believe this is it let's hope i'm sharing the right screen there we go 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I've never done this before. Um, so it is, uh, here is the website. And without yeah. kind of diving too deep collectively, I would just, if you can maybe explain as I click through a few things, like what sure. can visitors expect to find on the website right now? What is, mm -hmm. uh, what types of materials are part of the collection and maybe mm -hmm. what materials will be in the collection, but not quite yet? Like what's planned? What's upcoming? Absolutely. So yeah, so this is kind of our homepage. We've got this um, this first sort of introduction to some of the work you might find. And I know I, uh, I want to also preface this, um, what I'm about to say with the fact that like, I mentioned someone like who we're seeing right now on the screen, Carl Dare. I honestly, as a, as a practicing professional designer, that's not a name that I know inherently i don't know carl's story i know carl was significant to the history of canada of, of type in canada but that's even something i'm learning um you know and and so i wasn't trying to say that to, to start throwing out names of individuals that i want you to write down or, or figure out you know oh my gosh who is this person why were they important i you know i don't fully even grasp the importance of some of the stories that are present here but there is a diversity of of, of story and um I think that uh, when people when people arrive, we really just want people to not be intimidated to want to dig into the archives. So, you know, look at, you know, if you are, um, Diana, can you help me? Like your students currently, you're in a, you're in a, a general design, like graphic design, communications design program that typography is a course within this. And I apologize if this is, um, a left field question, but I just want to have a clear context of who we're speaking with. Absolutely. So kind of, sort of, <laughs> not okay. really. So the, okay. so many of these students, not all of these students, but many of these students are graphic communications management students. And what that means okay. is they are learning uh, a little bit about kind of three pillars, uh, one of which is creativity and design, another which mm -hmm. is technology, and mm -hmm. another which is business and strategy. And so the idea is they can, the whole process becomes demystified from idea generation through to print out the back door and they know how to manage that process. So, and, and, and we have students from other parts of the university who are taking this course as an elective, as something that interests them. Amazing. Okay. Well, I will say that that first cohort as well, like please keep me in mind if you're wanting to shop around a resume because the, the three pillars you described are um, vital and important. And that's awesome that you have a program that is setting you up across those three, um, th three categories uh, of thinking. Um, so yeah, uh, I would say a majority of our collection currently uh, is under advertising and promotion. And, and that's not because I'm the advertising guy that's telling you on this, but a lot of the work in here is actually, interestingly enough, advertising within agency, within an agency environment, or sorry, within a, um, within a design environment. And when I say agency, I, I'm referring to both like design agencies, advertising agencies, but a lot of these ads were actual self-promotion pieces, promoting the services of a typesetter. So I don't know from a historical perspective, and again, I'm uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be very frank on this conversation and say that all of the material we have in the archives currently, because this is just phase one, is everything from early printing in Canada. So that's when people were arriving here in my hometown of Halifax and doing early printing on press, uh, all the way up to 1985. And uh, unfortunately, I was born in 1985, so I can't really tell you a whole lot about this work 
before that, but that's where our archives currently stop. That's not where it's going to always be. We're going to introduce more recent work. But what I mean by that and, and why I'm pointing that out is that there is an entire industry, not just in Canada, but around the world, around type that is not around these days. And that is the, the use of a typesetter or a type craftsperson, somebody who whose role it would be in the um, in in the process of creating communications to set the type. Um, so, you know, if you were, uh, and I, I'm probably going to butcher this process, so I'm going to try and simplify it a little bit. But from my understanding, you know, if I were working in a communication design agency and we needed to create, you know, um, a annual report for an organization or some sort of a brochure, we wouldn't necessarily be the folks that would be setting that type because depending on the era in which we were working, that type might have to be set by hand um, on, you know, uh, in metal type, or it might have to be phototype, um, meaning they're exposing, you know, uh, uh, photography plates with, with, with lettering. Um, and so there were, there was an entire industry of, uh, um, type craftspeople that would set type like what we're looking at right now um and so the um, the reason why i think 1985 is sort of a significant year is because that is sort of when we saw the industry started to introduce technology which is huge nowadays but the fact that we have a service like adobe type uh, or adobe font sorry or you know our font book on our on our macs or um our pc equivalents those didn't exist, you know, so, so there were entire businesses whose job it were to take input much the same way that designers work with clients and figure out, okay, how are we going to set the type for this particular things? And those people were oftentimes known as sort of the go-tos and they made, you know, the, the designers or the, the advertisers might've had a great idea, but they didn't, they needed somebody with those skills to make sure that you know the copy was set appropriately, that the right typefaces were chosen um, to communicate the message. As I think we hopefully know, if you're in this course, you know that choice is, is significant. Um, it was in someone's entire job, or it, relatively, it was a role of, of, of an entire company. So Cooper and Beatty is a company you're seeing repeated through here, and they did some interesting pieces. Like I think this was a self promotional video, uh, self promotional poster. Um, and, you know, it's kind of an interesting piece in and of itself, but they were trying to communicate the use of type and its variants through, you know, old vintage can labels, uh, and how important that decision is. So what you're seeing in this section of the archives is a lot of self-promotional pieces for those type crafts people. Um, but this Cooper and Mitty organization, for example, no longer exists. Uh, and this work, I think, was done around uh, early 70s. So what we've tried to do in the archives is provide as much information as possible as we can source, as well as a story behind each of the pieces. So while I'd recommend that you, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that if you are like me and, you know, you grew up with computers, you grew up having access to a lot of um information at your fingertips at any moment. And nowadays it's right in our pocket. Um, some of the work that you see here may not look immediately impressive, 
Okay. And I'm going to say that because I found, I faced that at first too. When I looked at some of this work, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why is this significant? Um, what I'd recommend you do is if you do see a piece, even if you're like, why is this, why is this here? Look at the story behind it, because sometimes that tells us a little bit more about each of the pieces. Um, Diana, I know your question was about, you know, what we can expect to find. Have I answered that question clearly, or would you like me to clarify anything of what I've said? No, I think that's that's super clear. And it's very interesting that kind of that I, I really appreciate the fact that it's not just the maybe flashiest or prettiest or most kind of interesting type that is documented in the archives as we would kind of see it today. It's not we're not scrolling through Pinterest, but we're really scrolling right. through uh, a significant kind of pinpoints or milestones in the evolution of Canadian type, which is exactly, I think, what what your aim is. Yes, absolutely. Do yeah. you have time for me to dig into one piece in particular? Because it kind of clicked for me when I yeah. got it explained to me a little bit, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah. So if you go to the archives of course, and click click in advertising and promotion again, yep. um, the middle piece there at the very top corner of the city, mono yep. lino typesetting. Okay. Got it. So this piece here, um, I love this piece and I didn't know I loved this piece until I, until I had some people explain to me the kind of the story behind it. But what's interesting is that this is an advertisement by one of those organizations I was describing earlier. Mono Lino was a typesetting company. They would have been, I believe, a competitor to Cooper and me. Um, and if my professor Rod is going to listen back to this, he may be, you know, wrapping me on the fingers for, for getting some of this historic history wrong. However, what I loved about this piece was if, if, um, if you're able to click on the artwork itself, uh, Diana and see if it goes any bigger. Yeah. So if you zoom in a little bit, just on that corner. Um, so what's interesting is because this was done pre did it pre pre computers really? I don't know the exact year of this piece, but so all so even the like the slight skewing of that the corner of the city words to have to to go around the the edge so that it looks like the the headline is sort of set had to be done in a manipulative way that we we didn't have a computer to do, and it's not perfect. And I kind of love that about it because if I look at it now. If I were like, oh, if I were opening this up and trying to do this in Illustrator, I might open up my Bezier tool or one of my tools and try and skew it a little bit more. Like it feels a little bit rough. But at the time, you know, they had to find interesting ways to solve problems like this when they wanted to communicate something. Um, and I just love sort of the whimsy of this notion that, um, you know, from a business perspective, this organization moved away from one of I think one of the, like the central areas in which a lot of these typesetting businesses were set up in Toronto and they moved to a different location. And so they needed to get sort of attention and say, look, we, we may have moved, but we are at the most exciting corner of the city now and we have a new location. So it's a very simple communication. It's, hey, we've moved. But rather than just saying, hey, we've moved, they've done, you know, even uh, if you zoom back out, if you don't mind, Anybody here who's maybe played around with metal type um, from, from letterpress, the shape of the image that they put is the shape of a, a, a piece of metal type. So there's like a little notch there where the headline comes, or sorry, where the body copy fits in. And it's all sort of makes sense. And, and yeah, 
I just see, sorry, somebody commented. I love, there's like a little boat drawing, right? So the person who would have taken a, it looks to me like it's a photograph that they sort of manipulated. And I don't know if they added that little boat. Like there's just some fun little elements on this ad that make it more for me. And again, it, it is about the combination of things. It's not just about the, the type choices that were made, but it was how they use type as well as for me, I love the story that this is a company that needed to find a way to creatively market themselves. And I, I'm sorry, but being in the marketing advertising side of my, my brain, I, I appealed to this piece. But I just love that, again, looking at this flat on, you might go, okay, yeah, there's something interesting here. But when you really start to dig into some of the details, and, and if you read the story that's on the archives, I think that you can find in a lot of the pieces we have, there's just something more beneath the surface. Fantastic. Yeah. Very, cool. very, very cool. Very interesting. Thank you for that that dive in. Um, now, I, I have a question for you. I'm going to go back to your main homepage. And I my question for you is around, yeah, right uh, here, right here. Yeah. So this, the, so this is this is one of the goals or or phase one. So kind of yeah. thinking about what what's mm -hmm. to come. And so I just wanted to ask you about this statement. So the histories, artifacts, and perspectives most readily accessible to our team draw heavily from the dominant culture. The aim moving forward is to encourage sharing of work, stories, and perspectives that have not been acknowledged or represented, and to provoke new conversations and explorations. Future mm -hmm. content is intended to be largely user-generated. So mm -hmm. in that, the bit that I would love to kind of sink our teeth into is, can you share maybe some more information about those whose work has not yet been acknowledged or represented and how are you actively trying to achieve this? Because I think there's, there's some work perhaps already being done um, mm -hmm. uh, from we, I think you and I were chatting about Kevin King's work and Peter Bielak mm -hmm. and, and uh, in, in terms of indigenous type revitalization. Mm -hmm. So I, I just love to, to kind of pick your brain a little bit more about where you see how you're, you're hoping to include more than kind of a Eurocentric vision mm -hmm. in this, in this archive. Well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to caveat what I'm about to say with, um, I, um, from my personal perspective, I have, I have, um, I think th this is an ambitious goal for our organization to undertake, although I think it is necessary, especially today. Um, and I'm also not, uh, um, I'm not a curator myself. But I recognize that even in the act of curating, making decisions essentially of what we're going to be showing and not is, um, you know, it, it is a is a challenging process and a process that by which um, voices and perspectives and stories could easily be untold. So um, I do know that. Uh, again, ambitiously, the organization's goal is to create something that starts something. We may not be, what you're seeing here now may not be, uh, and, and phase one may not able be able to necessarily even capture the entirety of what, what has occurred. But I know the goal for the organization moving forward is that um, when I get to be Rod's age, uh, or just when I get to be uh, an, an older individual who is perhaps not working, uh, hopefully not working when I'm, you know, mid seventies, I, I, I want to know that 
you know, there is going to be a new generation stepping in and being able to tell the stories of what it was occurring now. Um, and so we're really trying to start something. And that sounds very lofty. Um, I don't have, I don't, I don't have specifics around who we're speaking to currently, um, what, what improvements we have made to improve representation across uh, gender, um, race, sexuality, ability, all of that is still, um, we are still sort of inundated with a lot of work and we are, the teams, and I'm not involved with this side of the CDA, but the teams that are sort of pouring over this work and working with historical organizations, whether it's at Massey College or other universities, they are intending to do this work justice and to tell stories again that have not necessarily been told or represented. So when we use a term like dominant culture, I mean, the advertising and promotion side of things, you know, meant that there was a lot of work that looked a certain way and spoke about a certain thing and had some ambitions. And I'm I'm not saying that that work is bad, but that I do think that there is also a whole other side of typography that I haven't necessarily touched on that we're trying to capture, which is, you know, private press or, um, uh, you know, whole industries that use type, but, but maybe not in the way that I traditionally personally have used it. So I think our ambitions are um, large in the sense that we want to ensure that it is not just more corporate white dominant, culture being represented throughout the archives and male as well. I think that's a huge, huge thing. Uh, and not just male, but, you know, diversity in sexuality, which is, you know, in the history of culture is difficult necessarily to quantify pre-1985 in some ways. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I know that there are significant works that we can talk about or um, with regards to racial identity and, and how that impacts the stories that we're telling. I think what our goal needs to be is, sorry, what I think needs to happen next is that we need to have the right people at the table, or sorry, I don't mean to say the right people as in a specific type of people, but we need more people at the table in the organization the CTA, in order to ensure that those stories are being told correctly. Because I think that even if we were to go to historical archives and start pulling out how others had documented diverse cultures in Canada, the way that um, the way that uh, culture has been documented in, you know, the uh, early uh, or like the, the early 20th century may not be necessarily the best way to represent that culture. So I think that there is still a lot of work that we need to do to make sure that we are telling diverse stories. Um, And I'm sorry, I don't have a specific example of like, we're talking to these people and we're looking to do this, but I can tell you that this early on in the CTA's life, it's, it, it was important and vital that this is front and center and at a core of why we exist. Um, the user generation side of things, while we're not we're not set up like a Wikipedia currently, we have ambitions and goals to allow for that. And, and I think on every piece, we we are inviting folks to um, to provide 
their perspective on the work, or if there is a mistake, we don't want this to be a gospel or uh, something that is um, highly regimented. This is about ensuring that work grows and lives because we can't make a perfect archive. Um, and this is going to be an ongoing effort. Have I danced around your question too much, or would you like me to get more to the nitty gritty <laughs> about what we're doing? Um, no, you're good. You're good. Just a little, okay. little ballet, a little hip hop. You're dancing a little, but no, just kidding. Just kidding. No, no. I mean, like, look, I'll be, I'll be upfront. Like, as a, as a gay man in the industry, like, I even recognize I have a lot of privilege. And like, what I think is challenging with any initiative like this is that there are so many people. There are so many things that we could say. Well, yeah, we need to show things that represent, you know, uh, this and this. And I think that it's important that we recognize this is meant to be holding typography at a certain um, excellence, I'll use that word. But at the same time, one person's impression of excellence is another person's not. So we need to kind of ensure that there is a diversity of voices, not just an amongst the archives, but in and amongst the people that, that are contributing to the archives and the work that we're showing. So um, to be a little bit more specific, we do have plans on going to obviously, or not obviously, but to ensure that the archives are fully bilingual with French. There has been conversations and goals um, to in in incorporate Indigenous content, perhaps Indigenous language support at some stage. Um, but, you know, as, as I think what was interesting, even from the conversation you mentioned about um, the work that uh, Kevin King is doing, you know, there are there are still pockets within our country where we don't have the proper characters to represent the languages of our indigenous people. And that is a that's a 2023 problem. Um, but we, we do recognize that the story of how even those typefaces and how typography has been used in other cultures within Canada, within this country, um, are important parts of our story. Thank you. And I really, no, I was just, I was just joking before, but no, you, I, I, I think it's a very important, an important thing that, uh, as you say, is, is, uh, is not an easy thing to set out to do, but an important thing and a necessary thing and something whereby the diverse stories, I think, enrich the archives in so many ways. It's not just we need to do this or we should do this. It's like, no, this is going to be better because we do this. Yes. Yeah. If I can just add one more thing, which was that, yeah. you know, coming from someone like Rod, who if any of you out there have ever, um, uh, Diana, I can give you like the talk he gave in 2017, we have on video and I'd love to, I can share it with you. And if you want to share it with your, your class, I, um, I think what's interesting about watching that back and the story I'm about to say is that when Rod did that talk, he realized there was a lot of mistakes. There was a lot of things he was talking about that actually people came out and said like, Hey, you know what? This wasn't actually like, this wasn't the case. And, and I, I don't think it was anything scandalous wrong, but there were just mistakes factually about the work that he was showing and trying to tell the story. And that really caused him to want to take a pause and say, hold on. This is why we're not creating a really nice book or why we're not creating necessarily a physical institution yet for the CTA because it needs to be some sort of a living, breathing entity that allows for that exchange of information and allows us to, to fix corrections and make 
make updates. Um, and even after we launched on September 1st, I know that there was a number of emails that kind of came in and it was like, oh, we had some stories wrong. We needed to tweak them. So this is going to be an iterative and growing initiative. I love that it almost feels a little bit like a conversation, almost. It's a back and forth. It's a, oh, this yeah. isn't quite right, or, oh, I think you should include this, or it, it's not this static fixed. And I love that example of a book. I mean, <laughs> we all love a good book, especially yeah. one with beautiful type, but yeah. also there's limitations and there's it, it feels very final. It feels very real and like it it will now never change never deviate but this is not that this is something mm -hmm. that is growing and evolving and needs that kind of space and the platform of the the web to be able to do that which i yes. appreciate mm -hmm. yeah you know what uh for the future forward people on this call maybe we'll be able to experience the cta in vr at some point i don't know i'm not I'm not a futurist, uh, but, you know, there's opportunity, I think, for us to look at how could we bring this work to life in a more engaging way. Um, you didn't ask it, but I will say that, like, one of the key things that we're really interested in doing is how can we tell some of these stories that aren't just in a, um, uh, uh, like, written word uh, form, but rather audio, there's some video, um, those are all avenues that we're looking to explore in order to help tell these stories. Very, very cool. Very cool. You'll have yeah. to, if, if you do anything in VR or 360 <laughs> camera or anything, we have one of like two, um, I don't even know what it's called. I can't remember the name of it, but it's essentially like a 360 viewing room. And so you can watch 360 videos in the center. Anyway, that's, this is a whole separate conversation, a different, uh, <laughs> evolution of the archive but there's yeah there's so many neat pathways that this could take and so many kind of mediums or formats that it could live in maybe multiple yeah. at the same time yeah exactly no i I, cool. I agree yeah very cool so i have one final question sam to wrap up with and okay if <laughs> it for any any of my students who have uh who have very kindly listen to any of my other episodes when I talk with people who like type and who live mm -hmm. and breathe type mm -hmm. I like to ask this question so okay. Sam mm -hmm. if you could choose only one typeface to use for the rest of your life what would it be and why okay um, the CTA representative in me is going to choose Gibson uh, and I'm going to purchase the license through Canada Type, Patrick Griffin. If anyone here on the call uh, wants to look up Canada Type, I'm going to give them a business shout out as well, because Patrick is a member of the CTA and a fantastic type designer uh, as well. Um, Gibson is a great Canadian face, although I am actually going to pick, because we are talking a little bit about this place in this country, another face that Rod designed. Uh, and I'm sorry to do that. I mean, I, look, I'm an advertiser, so you could give me, uh, you know, I could make Comic Sans feel like something cool if we wanted to do it that way. But <laughs> I, I will say that um, there's a face that Rod McDonald digitized that was based on a face by this gentleman, Carl Dare, who you've been seeing in this carousel kind of come back and forth every once in a while. And it's called Cartier. Um, and it's a serif. And so if I could pick two, I would do Gibson for my Sans because I'm a good student of, of Rod's and, and, and I like that it's on Adobe 
Adobe fonts so I can put it on Typekit and use it on the web and all of that stuff. But Cartier is another face that Rod had sort of digitized from Carl Dare's design is my understanding. And again, I'm going to get my hands wrapped when he watches this back if I've gotten any of these details wrong. But Cartier is a beautiful um, serif face that to me, for some reason, really exudes. There it is right there. Cartier, Roman, and Italic. Carl Dare. So Rod took this original design and digitized it essentially um, and made a, a like a font file for us to use. Uh, and it's the typeface you can purchase. Um, but it it for some reason just exudes Canada. So I hope that wasn't too long of an answer, but but that and I'm I kind of cheated by giving you two, but I number one, I'd pick Gibson because it's supporting the CTA, and number two would be Cartier because I love the way that it looks as a serif. Okay, that's fair. Listen, all the all the really deep into type people I talk to always give me like two, three, four. I'm like, you're not answering the question. You need to choose one, but that's okay. I will let you have it. I'll let Franklin you have Goth it. No, no, no. The advertiser <laughs> in me is going to pick Franklin Gothic and we're going to set our headlines in Franklin Gothic and we're going to make them really tight Lovely. or Futura. And, okay. you know, it's going to look like a Nike ad from the 90s because that's what I truly, really want. But the type nerd in me who's on this call right now is going to give you the answers I gave you. I love it. Fantastic. <laughs> so, Sam, if you have a couple more minutes, uh, I sure. would love to open up the floor to students yes. on the call who may have a question for you about this uh, Canadian Typography Archive or maybe just about your role Kind of art direction and you're working with type in a professional context so maybe we can just open it up if you have a question feel free to type it in the chat that's probably the most streamlined way to do this all right i see a really great question coming in and one actually that i would love to know the answer to as well so i'm assuming others do too so the question is what are the older pieces or sorry where are the older pieces uh from the archived archives sourced are they found mm -hmm. are they donated via the community museums so where where do they come from so my understanding is a lot of this work is, um and another um another reason for our existence is to try and digitize a lot of analog materials so my understanding is a lot of this comes from you know so the 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 typesetting organizations that i described that sort of business model that was ex in existence um you know post-war pre-war but sorry post-world war ii but you know up until about mid mid 80s um and then as computers started coming in that these these typesetters sort of went by the wayside but a lot of their materials when a business just you know i'm, I'm going to make some assumptions here but i'm going to assume that when a business model completely <laughs> implodes um sometimes there's not a lot of care and preservation put towards some of that work. You know, if an organization goes bankrupt because their entire industry is disrupted by um, a, a revolutionary product like a computer, um, not all the care is going to be taken to necessarily document and preserve that. So a lot of this work, I believe, is kind of personal collections or alternatively, so either a personal collection to collectors or historians um, and there are a few folks, if you dig into about us on the site, um, in, in the, the founding board members, a few of those individuals are those collectors I'm talking about. And so they might have personal collections of just print pieces, materials that are, um, uh, that are physical, 
And so a big part of what we were doing was making sure that we got high quality scans of a lot of the work um, so that it's accessible, but also it's not low resolution. You know, ideally we would get to a place where you could download a 600 DPI resolution image of some of our scans, open source, use it for whatever you need in terms of education or, or other, other means that the copyright is expired. But um, my understanding is that a lot of it comes from currently personal collection, although we're, we're working with folks like Massey College at University of Toronto, who have a, again, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can speak completely intelligently about this, but I, my understanding is that they've got just stacks of, of old dusty things that we love to get our hands full of, if you can excuse that colloquial term. Um, and then the other question I saw in the chat, do you want me to answer that as well too? Because I'm trying to figure out what's the right answer. Yeah, I mean, part of that. so so the second part of that is what aspects would make each piece archivable? What what makes the cut? How how do you decide? Yeah, um, I'm not deciding. You know, I've been working for 15 years, but even I don't feel like I'm qualified necessarily to make that kind of decision. Um, one thing we do like to say, and I'm not saying this to uh, yuck anybody's yum on the call, we're not intending to be a portfolio site. So we're not intending to be a site where you could, even when our arc, when our phase is complete, that people will be able to just upload their own work. If we say, yeah, we're now open up until 2025, for example, in a couple of years, um, our intention is to have a jury behind the work to look at the criteria really. Um, and I'm, I'm now searching for my notes, but my understanding is, yeah, it's, it's, it's really about sort of work that has provided significance to the industry to the the art form of typography to um to our culture as as a country um and and i don't mean to say our culture is in we're all in one monoculture but just you know the the world of canada or, or this place called canada because i don't want to define us by just the country name even especially when we're speaking of um, indigenous cultures and you know we're talking much looser than that. So I think what's important, though, is that there is just historical significance of some form that is that, is that place here. Um, I don't have a like, it needs to be this. I can tell you, it, it doesn't need to be set in Gibson or Cartier. It doesn't need to be set in Helvetica. It doesn't need, you know, if you submit some, or, or if something was set in Ariel, even, you know, God forbid, it would, you know, potentially be valid and included here. It's about, it's not about a certain style or a certain approach. It's about, is it of significance to telling the broader story of history in this place? That's my best marketing response. Does that clear? <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Great. Okay, I think, yeah. unfortunately, I think we're out of time, uh -oh. um, okay. but that's okay. If there are other questions, maybe uh, if, like where can not necessarily you sam directly but where can people find out more where can people uh if they're listening now or later on can kind mm -hmm. of um reach out or like where where can you be found at, okay so the cta can be found at canadian typography.ca um i would recommend as well if uh you folks have uh can follow us on instagram we're not on TikTok yet uh, I don't believe we're going to get on TikTok and that's the only social channel we're on is Instagram, but we'd love a follow there. Um, as well, when you go to the CTA, we have a, um, 
we have a way for you to let us know that you want to get involved in some form. Um, and so you can click on, I want to, I'm interested in helping out. And that could be everything from, you know, we're not necessarily looking for everybody to be content contributors, but it could be, you know, people who are just interested and have a passion for this and would love to help out in some way. Um, because we are a nonprofit, we rely a lot on volunteers. Um, the other thing I'm looking for, which I can't seem to find on our website, and I don't know why, um, is that we should have an email newsletter that you can sign up for. Um, and if I could find that quickly on our website, I would ask you to sign up, sign up for that. Sign up for that. But uh, feel free to contact us at info at canadiantypography.ca. Um, you can reach me personally at sam at canadiantypography.ca. I'm happy to fill that inbox up with any questions or, or comments if I didn't get to them here. Um, and yeah, give us a follow, check out the site, reach out if you if you are interested in participating in any way um, because as a nonprofit, we're, we're just looking to, to grow our awareness and the amount of students and the amount of professionals and the amount of instructors, fantastic instructors like yourself, Diana, that know about us. And that's part of our challenge is just getting us out there in front of the world. Um, so, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Well, Sam, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to learn about this, this newly launched initiative that's been in the works since 2017. And I'm excited to see how it continues to grow and develop and be able to use some of it kind of selfishly use some of it in my own teaching. So I, I'm really excited to see how it continues to evolve. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Sam, and thank you to the Canadian Typography Archives. Now, the community coming up in the next episode is led by a living legend in print. I had the immense pleasure of speaking with the one and the only Amos Paul Kennedy Jr., where we chat about the community he's created in Detroit, Michigan, called The Pile of Bricks, among many, many other topics in and around creative living and making. You don't want to miss the next one. Stay tuned. <laughs>